Hello, it's Kate here. As I record this, it's New Year's Eve 2019, and a bit of an announcement with Fearlessly Playful. Um, this is the first of the last two episodes of the season, and in fact, the kind of current incarnation of the podcast. So I'm going to be doing something new and exciting and some big announcements in early 2020, so stay tuned for that. Um, and you may also may have noticed, kind of riffing on that, that the last episode was about me getting unstuck. So chatting with one of my good friends and podcast mentors, um, Bryn Edwards. And that really was kind of the beginning of a long journey for me. Um, well, kind of like, I guess the beginning of the end of a long journey for me, um, which really kicked off, uh, getting unstuck around my podcast. So it took a little bit longer than I thought. Um, and so that new incarnation is happening next year. It's already happened. It's just about to be released into the wild. Um, so I had these two last episodes, um, that I wanted to share with you because they're really, really awesome. And, um, I didn't want them to be a victim of my stuckness. Uh, so yeah, stay tuned for some very exciting announcements and going to the next level with this podcast. And um, this episode, the second last episode of Fearlessly Playful, uh, is with Lawrence Crumpton, who is the HoloLens evangelist for Microsoft, which is, if you haven't heard of it, um, basically Microsoft's mixed reality or augmented reality platform. Um, and as we spoke, it was just kind of the eve of the launch of the HoloLens 2, which has just now come out um, very hotly anticipated, doing all these amazing things of kind of the cutting edge of the future. So this conversation was about the HoloLens and also Lawrence's work um, and how he has found playfulness in games and curiosity and all of those good things really useful in his life and work, and also just kind of looking at where we've come and um, the legacy of Microsoft Bob. I don't know if anybody remembers that, but it was one of kind of the early forays into making computers more human. So really, really fascinating conversation with a very interesting human. And um, yeah, I just really love this conversation. And also we talk about it in the podcast, but his stylist is his seven-year-old son, which is super rad. He was also just like impeccably dressed during the podcast. I wish you could see it, but um, yeah, you just have to imagine. So uh, I won't say any more, and I will just leave it to you to enjoy the amazing conversation with Lawrence Crumpton from Microsoft, and I will talk to you next year. Happy New Year's if you're listening on New Year's Eve. And with that, on with the show. So, Lawrence Crumpton from Microsoft. Yes, Kate. <laughs> Thank you for being on Fearlessly Playful. I am excited. <laughs> it's going to be like my third podcast to to add to my list. So you're a bit of a veteran. Then. Oh, no, no. no. Um, I I am just a fan of Short and Curly and Matt Beard from the University of New South Wales uh, Ethics Center. Uh, we use him all the time and, and my family. So shout out to Australian Podcasts. That's it. Yeah, shout outs. Perfect. So do you want to share a bit about your... So you're the HoloLens evangelist oh, yes. from Microsoft, but yes. you've also had a bit of a background doing some work in education and oh, yeah. other things. Yeah, look... Um, you're very humble with your very short bio. <laughs> you, it's, yeah, look, uh, I, uh, I've been with Microsoft for 16 years. My background is technology and engineering. Uh, I never actually thought 
I would end up at Microsoft, and it's been fantastic. As a matter of fact, I remember when I joined the company in 2003, Bill Gates was still the CEO. Um, I, I remember thinking to myself, this will be fun for two or three years, because I, I was with the startup before that, and, and here I am, 16 years later, still thinking, this will be fun for two or three years. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's been pretty amazing. Yeah. So you're obviously a playful person. So obviously, because this is a, an audio um, medium, we can't see what you're wearing, but oh, yes. your, your outfit is very playful. Oh, I am wearing uh, an ensemble picked by my seven-year-old. Um, and I just have this deal that anything that uh, he uh, buys or uh, picks out, uh, I will wear. And he has picked out uh, a very bright, colorful, paisley pattern, green, blue, red, like... Honestly, uh, it's psychedelic. It's psychedelic. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and when I asked him, why specifically the shirt, which, which I've grown to love, he said to me, I wanted to give you the elements of fire, air, and water. And he actually said that. And I was like, well, that's a good enough reason for me. And he paired it with a purple polka dot bow tie. And uh, for anyone listening to this, uh, I know you think it looks ridiculous, but in a weird <laughs> seven-year-old way... It's magnificent. It, it works because it's just two really bold things together, <laughs> right? It's like clearly this is an intentional choice. <laughs> like this, this man did not get dressed in the dark. He absolutely meant to put this on. So yes, yeah, it's very fabulous. Uh, did you see Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse? I have not. Uh, it is it is an amazing film. I, I, I'm just giving all these sh- shout outs to media, uh, but um, the main character Miles. Uh, will not lace up his Nikes. Uh, And it causes him problems sometimes because he will not lace up his his Nikes. Uh, And people point it out to him, and he just says, "Eh, it's a choice. So, yeah. It's a choice. It's a choice. (laughs) Very good. So how has your kind of playful disposition helped you in your work? This is one of the things I love to talk about on uh, my podcast is, is that playful disposition as a way of doing amazing things in the world of business, which can be a very serious place sometimes. Yeah. I look at, I don't know if help is the word. We'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll go with help. Um, what I, I do know is, um, it just, it's, it's a, a people thing. People, uh, I think generally want to trust other people. And I think for the most part, uh, a lot of people want to blend in. It's, it's, it's an internal drive. I, I don't think necessarily society um, asks people to conform, but I think there's a notion that conformity reaps success. And I would say my entire life has been an ongoing experiment to perhaps prove it wrong I, I don't know if that's exactly how it came out, but, but I can say that I do, I have always felt comfortable in my own skin, and perhaps that has resulted in playfulness. Mm-hmm. And, and I would also say um, over the years, the key is uh, you can always be playful uh, if the, the play is respectful mm-hmm. and if the play. Uh, uh, is constructive, mm. and and when when you're in a really 
really terribly hard situation with other people and everyone else is freaking out, uh, it can actually be really, really beneficial. So just having one person in there to kind of break that tension. Mm, I think that's in uh, neuro-linguistic programming, that state change idea. So being able to shift from that, oh, crap, something bad's happening to let's rethink this or let's have a different mindset and and help to solve the problem. We're still here. Bad things happened yesterday. We, we can make it through this, too, and we'll laugh about it uh, next time. So, yeah. And, and I would also say one other thing. Um, and I, I don't know about the NLP side of it, but uh, if you challenge yourself to think and see a situation differently, right? So if, if things look bad, but if you challenge yourself to think a little more about, well, it's not that bad. Uh, I think that your decision-making follows that that path. Mm. So not just your observation, but but your actual decision-making. Mm. So I, I think we have control over that. So it's kind of a way of being optimistic. Yeah, well, most of my playfulness <laughs> is uh, steeped in cynicism. But yes, <laughs> yes, it is. It is. But, but uh, I do believe that we have a lot more control over uh, outcomes than we give ourselves credit mm-hmm. for, and and most of the time, and I, and I actually give talks internally to some of our interns and to university students that you don't need permission to be successful, and you don't yes. also need an instruction manual to be successful. You are in control of that, and uh, and also uh, don't wait for permission. Uh, remember the rules about constructiveness and you know, in positivity, but don't wait for permission and also don't wait for help. Mm-hmm. Like if the idea is a good idea, you don't need someone to help you do it. Just go do it. And and most of the time people will see your action as permission and they will jump in and help you get that good idea done. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess lastly is uh, don't be afraid to take somebody else's great idea. Mm-hmm. So I, I always say my best ideas were someone else's great ideas that worked better than my plan. So now that's my idea. And if someone else has a better idea than my idea, well, your idea is not my idea. Like, mm. you know, don't be afraid to ask for help and and to uh, learn from really, really great people. Mm. And so do you, think, do you think kind of a playful attitude allows for that? Because I find that when you're playing games and being playful, it allows for you to be more open-minded and be more okay with taking risks and experimenting. And you use the word game, but, but I mean, um, if you went into certain industries, they might call it a simulation mm-hmm. or they might, you know, call it, um, you know, a, um, a, a sandbox. Yeah. Like I don't think a game necessarily is wasting your time. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's created some very interesting conversations with my 10 and 7-year-olds, you know. And I've challenged them to this thought. I've said to them, they can have as much screen time on a video game as they want if they build it. Ooh. Yeah. So if they build it, they can play with it all day and tweak it and change it. They will have unlimited screen time. So that's been a really interesting gauntlet I've thrown down to it. I really like that because I, I get asked, because I do a lot of work in games, obviously, and being mm-hmm. an advocate for play, I get parents asking me that that very thing, which is my, my kids play too many video games, what mm-hmm. should I do about it? And the weird thing is that we're starting to see school ne- schools now mm-hmm. using esports as a way yeah. to kind of harness kids' interest in games. But I take that same perspective, which is that kids are already playing lots of games mm-hmm. and 
why not shift them to being actual creators? Yeah. And that that's that's what I say when I get asked about our esports, something we should be doing in school. I say, well, why don't we harness their interest and get them to be making and giving them because that's like a future skill is being a coder and a game designer and a game developer and a critical thinker and being able to problem solve. Um, you know, I, I meet people. So, so one of the interesting things, I've been writing code since I was seven because I'm old enough that there was no Atari. And so, <laughs> so, so your, your game was coding. Yeah. You had, no, the, was. you had to create the fun. I created my own fun. And I will tell you, one of the most fun things I ever built was a plant simulator. See? Game. Mm-hmm. And uh, I needed to, I had to go get like books on plants and I was looking at, you know, soil quality and how much water will induce mold and was the plant healthy and fertilizing. And it, it was, and really it was like a, you know, eight bit, you know, RGB. So the plant skin was green, the sky was all blue. Um, it was ridiculous. Uh, but I made that game and I lost hours trying mm-hmm. to figure out you know, how to model a plant when I was like eight years old. Like it's ridiculous. And, um, I found some of my old games and loaded them in emulators and showed my, my kids. And they're like, dad, this is really boring. This is not a very good game. But again, I say, okay, you build, you build your perfect plant simulator. (laughs) And so you must've learned a lot about plants without realizing you were learning all about plants. I'm learning a lot about testing code. Like seriously, like if you don't have a disk drive or the cloud or a USB key or a hard drive <laughs> and uh, you type several thousand lines of code and, and you know, lots of numbers and commas and things crash, uh, you have to work out how to fix that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you if you want to do it, you you got to learn to read an error message and go through. So I learned a lot about test your, test your code, people. Uh, <laughs> yeah. This is a surprising thing. Play yeah. testing and testing is very important, but we Super. sometimes run out of time to do it, even <laughs> yeah. though it's kind of like the most important thing. It's not a bug. It's a feature. Ship it. <laughs> Ship it. Don't have a lot of... Well, you know, there are, are really famous... I, I'm trying to remember his name, but he created the game Spore. Oh, uh, Will Wright. Yeah, Will Wright. Yeah. And uh, I, if, if I'm recalling the myth uh, properly, uh, the whole thing of Spore came out of him finding a bug in another game. And, yeah, that sounds like that. Yeah, and discovered that that bug was kind of fun to play with. So yeah. he built a purposeful game around it. And he's very much kind of aligned with that idea of that making a plant game that... So he has a master class series now where you can learn about game design from Will Wright, which is kind of amazing. It's online if you want to watch it, but I've been kind of working through that because I'm a bit of a fan of, of The Sims and SimCity, which is what he created, and Spore. Mm-hmm. But what he talks about in that master class is that idea of being a game designer uh, is you can make a game about anything. And so it's almost like the ultimate tax write-off. Like a plant? Like, yeah, like a plant, <laughs> right? But, he, you know, he, I'm, he didn't make a sim plant game, but he's made yeah. games that involve, there's one called Sim Life. Yeah. One of his lesser known games. But that idea of, like, you have to learn all about the plant to make a game about it. And to then, you know, for tax, plant. you can say, well, I needed to go and take this botany course. And it was a tax write-off because I was making a game about it. But it, 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 it it's like this gateway of learning about something to make this game in this way that's almost like really hands-on and deep and a way to, to learn that's almost what's that, that experiential learning. It is. Because you're actually having to recreate the plant and 
in a simulation. But, but coming back, you know, to a, a, a real question, and, and I actually, I know you're interviewing me, but I would be very <laughs> curious uh, because I knew that this was about games and being playful, but but what do you consider a game? Like, I'm, I'm very curious. This is a conversation I've been having a lot lately, and I think that, I mean, there's books about what is a game, you know, mm-hmm. from an academic perspective, of like, let's philosophically define it. And I think the simplest way is I almost have play and games within almost like a dichotomy, which mm-hmm. is that play is kind of this thing that you do, which uh, you get into this space of being, it's okay to fail. Things mm-hmm. are fun. You have permission to be bold. It's like this, pro- almost like I appropriate the term, the magic circle, which is a mm-hmm. game studies idea, but this you're in this magic space where you can do all these things you wouldn't normally do. So I run game workshops where, for example, we get academics to go and pretend to be helicopters in the middle of the, the, the campus. And if you'd said that to them in normal situations, go pretend to be a helicopter, they would say no, but they're willing and happy to do it. But it's like this experimental, there's not a win condition, mm-hmm. which I think is the difference between playfulness and playing a game, which is that there's more specific rules and there's a win condition in a game. So if you think about Will Wright's stuff mm-hmm. like The Sims, mm-hmm. that's almost like a sandbox. Yeah. So it's like Minecraft, there's the game version of it, which mm-hmm. is that you're supposed to be accomplishing a goal. Mm-hmm. There's a win state versus the sandbox where you're just building. So that's like play versus game. So Have that's seen kind of Minecraft Earth? I have not. Oh, oh, this is the AR one, right? That's coming yeah, out. Yeah, I'm yes. going to talk about it yeah. later today. But um, so is that coming to to the um, the Hololens? Um, we have announced a public beta, and I think that public beta is on iOS and Android. Okay. Yeah. Because Microsoft owns Minecraft, is that right? No. Yeah, we we uh, purchased um, uh, my. Oh, I'm going to get the name of the studio wrong. Mojang? Mojang. Mojang. Mojang, yes. We purchased Mojang, and so Minecraft is one of the properties, and it's still a studio, and they still do awesome stuff. They also have Minecraft Dungeons. Can you tell I have a 10-year-old in the summer? (laughs) Uh, Minecraft Dungeons. But uh, I actually just thought about one of the most compelling corporate experiences I ever had, and it was... a. A game. Okay. And it was Was playful. it called a game? Or was it kind of a game that wasn't a game that was like training? Well, the funny thing was, they called it training, but it was a game. Ah, yeah. And and uh, how they set it up was amazing. So um, we had a consulting company come in. Can, can I say their name? No, I think so. It's yeah, they're not under an NDA. No, no, I'm not. Well, no, no. Uh, they, 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 they are amazing. And I, I've looked for many uh, reasons to work with them since. But um, they're called Fuel, P-H-U-E-L. Mm. And um, this was my first experience with Fuel. So they bought us all in, and we were all from very different teams and disciplines and backgrounds across the business. And uh, we came in, and I I remember uh, they started handing us, as we walked through the door, like literally walked to the door, and instead of having normal desks or chairs with little notebooks out, they started handing us flags. And the um, table was set up like the UN. And... uh, Every flag corresponded with a country. So you had to find your country, and your country had your flag on it. They were all made-up countries. And when we got there, there was just a list of rules, game rules. So your country had a chief import and export, and your country had a certain amount of money, etc. And the goal of the game, we were going to do three or four trading rounds. And you needed 
to work with other countries uh, in this assembly to maximize uh, prosperity in your country. So, you know, health, you know, um, money, technology, education. And uh, they would randomly assign like natural disasters to each country. So, oh, this year, great. Look, you got extra grain. And oh, this year was bad. You got no grain. And so they would say go. And those were the rules. Mm. And um, I remember because you're working with your colleagues. Some you know very well and some you don't know very well. And chaos broke out, right, in these, in between these rounds. And uh, what no one noticed, because we were busy with our flags and declaring war on each other and <laughs> literally sending in spies to steal other thing and doing side deals like it was ridiculous, was uh, there were five instructors, one facilitator, but five other instructors in the background, and they were all riding down what we were doing. They were watching this and sometimes they would come over and ask if we have any questions and they write a notebook and no one noticed them. They were all black and they just kind of faded in the background. Yeah. And when the whole thing was over and we had such fun, such fun, just a group of idiots, <laughs> uh, <laughs> they they said, okay, what do you guys think? So, oh, that was excellent. It's like, and what did you learn? We were all kind of looking at each other. And it's like, let's tell you what we saw. It's like, as soon as we said go, you... That person over there, his name is Jaron Cohen, by the way. Uh, J- so Jaron, you jumped up and you immediately asked how to go to war with Lawrence Crumpton. And I was like, bring it on, Jaron. And, and it was interesting. Like, we found out all of these things about how we negotiate, yep. how we handle conflict, how we handle disaster. How do we respond? Do you, you lean into your team? Do you ask for help? There was one group who just stuck it alone, would do no trades. It's it's like corporate, like a, a corporate global version of Monopoly, where you and your sister get together to drive your other sister off the block. You know, it was this way. People having tantrums, people knocking their stuff off their desk. And then they took all of those observations and for the second half of the workshop, worked with us to understand how those kind of innate behaviors mm. actually come out in your professional work mm. and gave us a list of things to do within ourselves next time you encounter yourself in one of these situations where disaster has hit. Mm. And how did you win this game? Oh, well, what you did was you went and found other people who had similar problems or uh, you did a trade or you looked for mutual value. Mm. My goodness, it was amazing. And we all walked out like the joke was on us because yeah. we were like, oh, my goodness, I did do that. I did yeah. declare war on somebody the first chance I got. Yeah. Revenge was very important to me. Like, yeah. Because your guard is down, right? Because you're playing the games. So it's you're like you're just the doing, game. You don't even notice. You're in the flow. You don't notice the people watching. You don't notice the notes. people saying, this guy is an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Why did they hire him? Yeah. Was bad. So, did you find uh, getting the feedback? Did, was that kind of done? Did you find that you were more receptive to the feedback because there was the gamey kind of playfulness to it, or was it still well, kind of hard to hear? No, no. I think that that it, in that particular environment, how they set it up, um, it was undeniable what you did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like like they couldn't give you the feedback. Go well. I didn't do that. Yeah. And they, everyone in the room was like, "Yes, yeah, you yes, did. Yeah, you did. <laughs> yep, you did." You know, you came over and you you took all the cookies that my country produces in a year, and you ate them by yourself. You're rude. Yeah. No, I I I, I think because you kind of confronted yourself. They didn't confront you. You yeah. you, you you. Yeah, they're not. T- yeah. yeah, they're not telling you they're anything kind of, you didn't. Yeah, do. yeah, yeah. And so that's actually kind of um, another thing I want to ask you about was that 
on the one hand, so they didn't call it a game. And so there's this, this another conversation I have a lot is that there's what I describe as um, game natives, people who've grown up with games mm-hmm. as part of their life and part of mainstream culture. And so it's, you kind of, they kind of, I'm one of these people, you probably are too. Mm-hmm. Um, you get the games are a good thing. And then there's people kind of over maybe 40 who, um, or maybe they're in late, there's early adopters who might yeah. be a bit older, but um, generally, and I found this one, I used to do a lot of work for the games, advocate, advocate for the games industry. They're like, yeah, my son does that and I wish he would stop. And that's like the end of the conversation about the games and why we should support them. And even though it's a bigger <laughs> industry than, than film yeah. and music combined, it's just like, it's a time mm-hmm. waster. So we still have this negative conception around mm-hmm. play as a time waster and um, games is not something that's useful. And so that's why I kind of had that question about um, you know, did they couch it as a training or it, a game? Because that positioning yeah. seems to still matter, even uh, though there all, are all these really nice flow-on effects of games in play. Well, I, I, and I think anybody who has worked in some of the, the things I've worked in, so one of the things I did for six years at Microsoft was I was the academic developer evangelist. And of the core things Microsoft wanted was awareness of what our capabilities are. And, and I'll tell you right now, um, even now, there is a perception that Microsoft does Windows. And that's it. Like, it's the, the one product, Windows. A few people go, oh, well, Windows and Office. It may be Word. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Word and Excel. If you hit kids of a certain age, they'll say Minecraft and Xbox. Yeah. You know? And so to them, they'll go through life, and Microsoft is Minecraft Xbox company. But certainly adults have a, a perception that we are just word. Very serious. Yeah, and PowerPoint and and, and Windows. And um, so as a developer evangelist, we have these amazing tools uh, and, and platforms that make other people successful. And in most cases, um, for universities and students, access is free. And, and, and so I would go out on university campuses, uh, work with professors and researchers and students and try to find ways to give them like this this way to express themselves and i'll give you two very quick things first is uh out of those university campuses i currently call myself friends with uh 20 25 students that went on to create amazing startups all doing artificial intelligence all graduated. Some are actually doctors now using AI that they explored in university to, um, you know, uh, teach machines to understand blockages, you know, in your internal systems. And, um, but, but they were all phenomenally successful. And, mm-hmm. and, and I would go into a university classroom. I'd stand in a lecture hall in front of 200 people, have a chat, maybe do a workshop. And I would ask one question. I would say, which one of you can change the world. Mm-hmm. And, and this statistic held for six years in a row. In a room full of 200 people, one person would sheepishly put up their hands. One. Wow. And, and it, it, it happened enough that I can just give you these numbers. And I would say to everyone else in the room, why are you sleeping? Mm-hmm. Do you think this person is nuts? Sir, ma'am, see me after 
class because I want to help you. I, mm-hmm. If you believe you can, I believe you mm-hmm. can. And and they would tell me wacky ideas and they would go off and do them. Like like I said, these these companies, um, Black AI, um, Stethocloud, uh, Premonition, like all of these amazing companies, Inamia came out of just people not knowing if they could, but getting a little bit of help. And why I'm, I'm, I'm pulling out that it's one out of 200 is there was nothing different about their opportunity. They're all at the same university, at the same level, in the same course, but only one person thought they could. And maybe that's the difference between you doing it and not doing it. It's just mm. believing you can do it. Mm. And coming back to games, I would say nine out of 10, maybe all 10 out of 10, I can only think of one person who wasn't a big gamer, but they were all gamers, mm. every one of them. Uh, and usually, they all had taken a stint at making their own games. So of the people who put up their hands yeah. to say they could change yeah. the world. Yeah, who have wow. are That's now running. That's a great running. Yeah, stat. But, but, <laughs> but, they, but all of them. One, matter of fact, if, uh, if I can call out another person, uh, a guy named Michael Quant. I met him. He was a, he was a technologist. Uh, he was an IT student, a networking student mm-hmm. at UTS. And uh, Michael's one of the guys who put up his hand. If you ever met Michael, you'd think he was one of the quietest people. And he is very, very quiet. And Michael came to Microsoft and he interned for me. And I tried to put him on as much game-related activity as possible because game developers are amazing developers. And uh, Michael did a phenomenal job. And when he uh, graduated, we couldn't hire him because Animal Logic took him. And he did R&D uh, on their tools team and worked on movies like Lego Batman and and um, the Avengers, and now Michael works for a game studio in Cambridge in the UK, uh, building all of their tools. Mm. And he was one of the 200 people that put his hands up. Uh, And like I said, a phenomenal developer, not formally trained in games, doing gaming for a living. Amazing. I was at GDC a few years ago, and SpaceX was there. And I said, mm-hmm. why are you guys here? Are you like doing some kind of training thing? And they're like, no, we just uh, find that game developers are really good at writing rocket code. They are. So, yeah. yeah. I think it's because you must have to be able to solve so many problems and fit things together and be creative, and it's probably a bit more challenging than because it's the hardware and the software and all of the different pieces. and. What do you think? Do you think that's- I, no, I, look, I don't, I don't actually think that they have any technical... I don't think their their coding capability is any different. I think the thinking is completely yeah, so it's different. Like more, it's yeah. more problem-solving, more creativity, more imagination. The creativity. Perhaps. The creativity. Okay. And I, I know... So I, I one of the, the, the products I look after at Microsoft now is uh, HoloLens for the region. And uh, in building a HoloLens app, you don't have a screen to output to. You don't mm-hmm. have a keyboard to output to. You don't even have a joystick. Like, the world is the canvas, and your hands and voice and eyes are the input and the output, uh, and how do you build a user experience for something that hovers? When mm. you build a screen, do you also have to build the back of a screen? Have you ever thought about what the back of your screen looks like? Those are things that, for the most part, game devs, because they deal in 3D space, mm. for the most part, they have to think about a lot, mm-hmm. and they kind of do intuitively. And so we find that the best holographic developers, people in Holland, come from a bank, games background. And now uh, we are finding SIs and traditional system integrators and, and companies uh, snatching up game devs because they're trying to build these solutions that 
have no screen or interface. Mm. And how do you do that? Well, a game developer can help you do that. Mm. And there's another thing I wanted to ask you about was that um, connection between, so I think when VR started, like VR 2.0, the second wave, I guess, of <laughs> VR, I think a lot of the excitement around it was around games, um, <laughs> like the possibility of games. And what's been, I guess, surprising is I think more of the uses cases of it has been more of the serious business applications, mm-hmm. like the enterprise stuff. But if you look at like what you guys are doing with HoloLens or like one of the companies here in Western Australia, Sentient Computing, they use game technology and game developers mm-hmm. and kind of game thinking to create very serious yeah. business applications. So they're creating safety training to protect people from, from getting electrocuted or falling at heights. And mm-hmm. you're creating um, Skype for mixed reality and all of these uh, tools that enable co-presence in a way that we've not imagined before. So can you talk yeah. a bit about yeah, look, that is like a like what you're working on and the connection with games and playfulness and how that's yeah. You. Look, uh, well, so uh, the, the the things that we are trying to do as Microsoft and and why we call it mixed reality is because we want to enable these amazing solutions. But when you deal with a computer screen, I'm gonna I'm just gonna throw it to screen. And, and screens take all shapes and forms. There are screens you wear on your face. There are screens embedded in a laptop or in a phone. When you are limited to a screen, you, you don't really understand what's happening in the world. Or you need a lot of extra stuff to help your application trapped in the screen to understand the real world. And in mixed reality, where we're talking about connect cameras or... Um, some of the services I'll talk about in the talk today, or HoloLens itself, uh, the the ideas and the interfaces in that device, the sensors are all meant to allow the device to understand the environment, the people using it, the the other people present, um, you know, the physical world attributes. Uh, so, as a developer, you don't have to write a lot of glue code to have it make sense of the world. And then another thing with HoloLens specifically that's super important to Microsoft is um, that all of this is available on the device, completely free, untethered. You don't have to have anything else on you. You put it on and you, and it works. You don't need a network. It's like magic. Um, you know what's like, really like what's really funny is if, if we if one day we we get sufficiently advanced enough to have a time machine and if you go back far enough and you whip a whole lens <laughs> out they will burn you as a witch, <laughs> yeah. like no one's going to put up with that yeah. because it 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 will be magic yeah. to them. Is that there's that saying that, that any sufficient what was it new technology is indistinguishable from magic or something like that? Any sufficiently advanced technology would be indistinguishable yep. from yep. magic and and and. There were things that happened. I'll, I'll tell you my first real experience with HoloLens was a game. Uh, it's a game called Fragments, and it was built by a studio in France called Asobo. Um, and now they have a commercial division called Holoforge, same, same company. And they took the... It, it, I don't want to oversimplify it to say depth mesh because it wasn't just depth mesh, but they took the... the fused sensor information off a HoloLens and they iterated some algorithms over it so it can understand what tables are and what floor is and what chairs are and walls are. And and it wasn't like they didn't do anything explicit with it, but they made all of the objects in their games listen 
for opportunities to amaze you. Mm-hmm. And translating that was the first time I bought a HoloLens home before it, you know, we put them on sale and I needed to learn the device. Um, I was told, just go play fragments. I boot fragments up. I'm standing in my living room and an AI named Hamish, look like human, is now standing next to me and he's talking to me. And that's cool. And while Hamish is talking, I start to walk around him and he is facing me and his eyes are following me. And then his head kind of turns as I walk and then he turns around. And as we continue to talk, Hamish walked over to my couch and he sat down and crossed his legs and uh, it flipped me out. I was just flipped out. And later in the game, spoiler alert. Um, Hamish gets hacked by your adversary. And so instead of being like this cool, blue, you know, helpful Jarvis-type AI, human AI, he's now dressed in black, and he's got a black hoodie on, he's got a red face, and he talks like this. And the hacker <laughs> is, is, has taken over my AI because the hacker knows I'm closing in on him. And as he's doing it, he's walking around my living room, And he's looking around saying, ah, this is a really nice place you got here. And he leans over and there's a photo on my dresser. And he's like, oh, a beautiful family. And I turned the game off. I was just like, I'm done with this. (laughs) I've seen enough, I believe. (laughs) And uh, I spent a while learning how they did it. And so in HoloLens 2, like in HoloLens 1, it was called Spatial Understanding, and there were lots of different APIs there. But in HoloLens 2, they've kind of um, consolidated that under something called Spatial Awareness. And we put the code on GitHub, and basically you can start with Spatial Awareness, and you can extend it, and you can build some really crazy things because by default, the device is able to understand the space and the interactivity that's happening. Mm. So. Yeah, I remember when I first saw that video of the when the HoloLens one came out, where it's the demo where the guys there's like a it's like a stage, but there's a living room there with a couch, and he's shooting the aliens, and it's it's aware that the couch is there, yeah, and it's they're coming out of the wall and they're coming out of the couch, and so for me as someone who makes games that are like physical world and customized to be in a specific location, the challenge has always been how do you go and take that to another city, and then when I saw that, it does it for you. You don't have to go and customize it for that space so that just blew me away but there's so much more than that so the the engineering manager for that game um is a guy named grant um and and uh because he's got access now to hand and eye tracking on holens too uh anyway he's thought through some other really (laughs) i don't know how much of this i can say Grant has thought through some other really magical, amazing stuff. So when you get your HoloLens 2, you're going to have some experiences. Yep. I'll just shut up and say that. Some experiences built by the same guy who built that. Cool. I know I can say that. And, uh, and you're just going to love it. So it's not just serious business applications, but there's some games in there too. Yeah, I, I think what we I, – I don't think Microsoft uh, is out there saying that this is – an Xbox replacement or even VR replacement or or even AR replacement, what we want to do is show you that this device can do some really magical, playful stuff. And when you think through real-world, very difficult problems, you now have a device that can 
keep up with your creativity. Mm. So as as far and crazy as you can push your idea, this device can execute it for you. And I've seen some really clever. Uh, there's a, a partner we have uh, named um, uh, Studio Two Sixteen, mm. and Studio Two Sixteen uh, makes uh, a solution, and they use it in training where. You could be here in Perth, I can be in Sydney, and we could have somebody in Seattle, and we can all holoport in together and work collaboratively. There's a, a partner out of Melbourne called um, Fologram, and they will allow you to take you know, a model, a Revit model off your machine, and not just put it in the real world, but, but basically instrument that model with a holographic instruction set. So I, I always say, think about Lego instructions, but in three-dimensional space. Mm-hmm. And step-by-step, step, you can build things just like, um, spoiler alert, Spider-Man <laughs> does in Spider-Man Far From Home. Spoiler alert. Yeah, but it's yeah. that kind of uh, thing. If, if, if you haven't seen Spider-Man Far From Home, I'm so sorry. I think sorry. I have to go see it now. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I just spoiled something very delightful. Yeah, I like that playfulness and creativity that's in that as well. Do you remember Microsoft Bob? I do remember Bob. <laughs> Mel, um, um, Melinda Gates uh, was the project manager. Was for Bob. she? Yeah, she was. Huh? Fun fact. Yeah, fun fact. And uh, I, I, you know, Bob I, I was really just like, ahead of his time. I, I, well, I agree because I, I actually found my, my Bob, Microsoft Bob CD yeah. that has the Bob smiley face on the CD. You could probably still run it in an emulator. Huh. It would just run really fast. But I really liked that that playfulness. It was totally unlike anything else at the time. Yeah. And I remember, I think I was maybe 14 or 15 when that came out. And I remember I spent a lot of time playing with Microsoft Bob, even though Microsoft Bob wasn't a game. Yeah. No, no, I won't. Like, exactly the same thing. You should thing. probably say what Microsoft Bob is. Oh, uh, Microsoft <laughs> Bob was a, 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 I think, directionally correct, but super early, too early, too, too, soon, too, too soon. soon attempt to simplify computing. So Bob tried to do things on your behalf. Um, Bob uh, kind of uh, hid some of the, um, I would say, interface from you and tried to give you the stuff that you needed. And it was just too early. I, I think that's yeah. all. If you look at Alexa now, Alexa is basically, you know, Bob's Great, 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 great grandchild without a screen. Mm. So it was too soon, but it, it was, was very. Soon. I mean, I think it probably inspired me because mm-hmm. I still think about it. Because it was, it's like that house. You're in a house, yeah. so the interface becomes the idea yeah. is to try to make it take, take that, that. I guess the desktop metaphor even further to being yeah. a house that you could organize your things and well, it's a familiar interface. Like the house is an interface. If you go into Windows Mixed Reality now, uh, your home screen is. Cliff House, or actually, you, you you can choose now between a loft apartment. Uh, that's your home screen, and uh, yeah, and so Bob lives on in spirit. <laughs> I, I I I loved Bob, and and I also really loved uh, in Windows Mixed Reality. I mean, there's something very similar in Steam. There's like a like a home in Steam where you can watch your experiences. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I absolutely love Cliff House. 
And the audio engineer, another shout out to my friend Mike Kimistruck, who is the audio engineer who designed the spatial sound in uh, Windows Mixed Reality. And check out his project, if you're a gamer, called Project Acoustics, which allows you to do occluded audio in games. Mike, that's for you, baby. So um, there's a lot of people who are very excited about HoloLens, too, so it's not out in Australia yet. Do you have any... It's not out anywhere up- yet. ...updates of yeah, yeah. when that's uh, Absolutely. Thanks for asking. So it's, it's not out anywhere yet, but um, when HoloLens 1 launched, uh, Australia didn't get it until a year after U.S. and Canada and U.K. Uh, HoloLens 2, Australia is a launch country. So day one, week one, uh, if you went on the pre-order list... You will get, get it with your else. yeah. You'll you'll get shipped awesome. as well. So we launch. We we call um, it a launch window. So for us, uh, they will start shipping sometime later this year. Hopefully, very soon. You know, um, and and like I, I had a lot of people call and say, "Oh, should we go on the pre-order list in the U.S.?" And I was like, "It'll make no difference. Mm. You pre-order it here. We'll get it to you this year." Nice. And so are, are you still taking pre-orders? Um, without revealing too much about the internal process, uh, we got a lot of pre-orders globally. Yeah. And I would say we got a lot of pre-orders in Australia. And uh, I am not sure anymore. I, I can say if you went on the pre-order list yep. that you would get it uh, this calendar year. Uh we will still sell you one. Whether or not we can squeeze you into this calendar year, uh, I'm not enough. sure. But 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 you There's know, there's going to be a lot of hololenses around it. Telling yeah, me. you 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 might look out and get into uh, November December if you order now. But I, I will tell you, I, I've seen the uh, forecasts, and uh, yeah, there's a lot of demand. We're very excited. It, it, it means that we've done something right, mm-hmm. you know. And the the other thing is. Um, I would say everyone who was on HoloLens 1 has been really keen for HoloLens 2. Yeah. So there is an announcement publicly um, that Toyota has committed to tens of thousands of devices. Um, you know, so I, I think uh, they, they've, they've said 14,000 is the, the, the first wow. order, 13,000, 14,000. Um, and they were users of HoloLens okay. 1. And what did they use them for? Um, manufacturing their automobiles. So okay. if you start thinking about, uh, especially where you have humans and machines interacting with one another and it's super precise, um, there are, uh, if you can help the person on the front line, so the front line worker who's got to put the chassis in, who's got to put the doors in, has got to get the seats right, uh, not make an error, uh, you really reduce your cost. And as it's not just catching all the errors, uh, sooner or not making the errors. Once you get an error, um, the further it goes before you discover it, the more it costs you to fix it. Mm. Uh, and if it ships, if that error ships to a customer, like you know, that it's going to cost you a lot. Yeah. So they're and using it. Could be it dangerous. And and, yeah. and it potentially could be dangerous. Yeah. But they're using it to uh, avoid making mistakes in the first place. So uh, think uh, holographic assistants and guides to ensure that. You've completed the task, and if you have any questions, you can call someone remotely who can help you complete the task, can annotate in your field of view, can add extra work instructions. 
uh, can coach you through, and you don't have to have lots of extra people uh, there to do that. So. The future is here. Yeah. And, and it's one of the craziest things is I, I still talk about a lot of good stuff we did for three and a half years on HoloLens 1 um, because it's relevant. But it's weird because I'm talking about history at this point. Like, it's like talking about Bob. Yeah. HoloLens 1 is like talking about, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, Windows 3.1. Like, it was it, – it's history. Yeah. And HoloLens 2 is where we're focused, and it's, it's magic. Yeah. History and magic. There you go. Thank you so much, Lawrence. (laughs) Thank you, Kate. I really enjoyed this.